Hi, friends. This is episode 87 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. I'm so happy that you joined me for this exciting conclusion to our series, A Life of Many Colors, the interwoven story of God and Joseph. And in this conversation, boy, we went a couple of different directions I did not expect, but they were the perfect things that we needed to talk about. I know you're going to be deeply moved and you're going to take home some things that are really going to help you with some of the issues that you're wrestling with spiritually. And before we go too far, you know, I want to make sure that you go to our website, thebiblelab.com, go to the series, A Life of Many Colors, and go to the very last section, uh, very last episode there, and get your study guide because I want you to be able to see some of the things in the language, culture, context there that will really help you understand what God wants you to know about his character there. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation, and I just want you to know I'm praying for you and wishing God's greatest blessing. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Number one, I am braver than most of the people in this room. I am braver than most of the people in this room. Oh, what a group of scaredy cats we have in the Bible lab today. Hang on, hold them up because I think I can count the number of yeses I have. Yes, and it's around 12, maybe 13. Uh, the vast majority were no's and it looked like about 15% maybes. Wow, okay. I wonder if I would have asked that a couple of weeks ago before war broke out in Ukraine, if I would have gotten a different response. But I think a lot of us have put ourselves in those shoes, haven't we? And asked the question, what if that was me in that situation? And we realize it would be quite a challenge for us to decide whether we're going to stay put and fight and support uh, those who are fighting or whether uh, we would really utilize that corridor of safety out of the country. Number two... I would rather try something new than to do the same thing over again. I'd rather try something new than try the same thing. Uh, well, hang on a second. I'm seeing a majority of yes. I'm seeing about 90%, uh, 85% yes, and a split between maybes and no's for the remainder. Now, you just said you weren't brave. <laughs> and yet, now you're saying I would rather try something new than to do the same thing over again. Doesn't it take some bravery? Terry says no. He says it's a, rel it's a relative thing, yes. And it depends on if you're trying restaurants or if you're doing other things. I hear you. I hear you. Number three, I get nervous when entering places and situations where I don't know the details first. Okay, this is more in alignment with the first uh, statement, I'm a brave person, because I'm seeing 90% I'm seeing yes, and a, wow, about 7% no, and 3% maybes. So, the majority of you get nervous when entering places and situations where you don't know the details first. I understand, because you're not brave. I get it. <laughs> but it's hard, when you're nervous, to do that, to try something new, rather than do the same thing over and over again. So, I, I see, we're 
we're parsing this thing a bit. Number four, because of Satan's accusations of God's unfairness, God is unable to guide more than he is able to protect. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Don't attack me. I can't read, but God is love. Remember, this is a community of love. I'm going to change my whole introduction to this class now. Because of Satan's accusations of God's unfairness, God is able to guide more than he is able to protect. Oh, this is a groaner. Okay, you're taking your time. Hey, hold it up, hold it up. I, not everyone's playing. Okay, we are, we are all over the place. Uh, half and half, yes and no's, and, and it looks like out of the entirety of the crowd, there was about 15% maybes. So, yeah, we're kind of split on this. Uh, does God offer guidance or does he offer protection? And this, oh, you say both. Equally? <laughs> I, heard, I heard several yeses and one, maybe. Yeah. We're going to talk about this today because one of the issues that I deal with is I'm working with a lot of people who are in situations where they're praying for God to intervene. A lot of the intervention is for God's protection or for God to, to in some way change things so that it will protect them. And other times people are saying, I need guidance. I need God to, to help me understand uh, what's the path that I need to take, what's the best route uh, to go in my life at this time. And it seems like God is inconsistent in this area especially as I'm talking to people who ask the question, I prayed for this, why did I not receive? And they fill in the blank with either the guidance or the protection that they look for. So we're going to talk about that today because a lot of people are confused in how does God interact and why is it that he interacts in some ways sometimes and in other ways not. And specifically as we're looking at the life of Joseph and his brothers and his father, we have to look at why does God intervene sometimes, like in the life of Joseph, to help bring reconciliation to families. And then there's your family, <laughs> which seems to be kind of stuck in this loop where there's no reconciliation and there's really no hope or path going forward for anything to change within your extended family or in your workplace or all the relationships that, that you have from a day-to-day -day basis. So ultimately, that's where we're going to get in this conversation, if that's the way God leads you and, and us all into uh, trying to discuss what does the Bible say about God's interaction during times of, of real challenging relational issues. And so that's what we're going to look at as well today. Number five, Christian faith does not relieve us of the need to make hard choices. Often, it seems to multiply them. Oh, wow. That's a realist crowd today because I'm saying about 95% yes. And uh, keep up, keep up, uh, about 3% about no and 2% maybe. So most of you are saying yes, vast majority of you are saying yes, that Christian faith does not relieve us of the need to make hard choices. Often it seems to multiply them. So what you're saying is how God interacts with you and your life 
is that instead of him taking away, even though you're praying for God to take away the tough stuff, that if your relationship with God is strong, he's actually going to lead you in the situations where you're going to have hard choices. In fact, they might even be multiplied because of your relationship with God. And we're going to talk about that today because most people who give up on God and, and have their reason for why they no longer believe that God is love or that he even exists is because they prayed for something and their problems didn't go away, their problems multiplied. So we're going to talk about that today as well, if that's what you want. But we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 46 today. Um, those of you who have read through it before, you know that in the very center, like the, the heart of this entire chapter is a bunch of genealogy, which you guys get really excited about, I know. I'm not going to read the genealogy, but we're going to address it in the conversation if, if, uh, if it's appropriate and it comes up at the right time. But we're going to read kind of the first part of the chapter, and then we're going to read about two-thirds of the way down uh, in, in the next chapter, and then, uh, and then go from there. But let's start in verses 1 through 7 of Genesis chapter 46, and it says this, So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, uh, some of you have even mentioned this to me today. Uh, he's using the term Israel, not Jacob. And then later on, it's going to use Jacob here in a little bit. Why are they using the different terms? And ultimately, it's just the author trying to help you make connections. Because the readers remember who were, the, who were the first people to read Genesis or hear the reading of Genesis? Take a guess. The Hebrews, at what, at what era of the Bible story? What has just happened? The Exodus. That's right, 450 years of slavery in Egypt, and now they're out in the wilderness. And that's when the Hebrews, these children of Israel get to hear the story in this form. And so that's why uh, many commentators say the reason why he uses the, the name Israel now, because we've been using Jacob up to now, and you're going to see him go back and forth, is they're trying to help the people associate their, their lineage with Jacob. And every time they say children of Israel, to kind of help them have a stronger connection that, well, we could say children of Jacob, or even some of the commentators say Jacobites, um, but they're trying to help them have that connection, that familiarity with it. So it starts out, Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Verse 2, and God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, and the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's son took their father, Jacob, and their children, and their wives, in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, 
taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. Okay, let's take a break here, and I'm going to share with you a couple of things just so you understand the emotions of the story and some of the things that you need to understand that um, are not intuitive. You, you wouldn't naturally know this. First of all, Jacob's ex- extremely nervous because he's leaving the known and having to go into the unknown. We're going to talk about this in a minute. It's hard going from what you know and stepping into the unknown, just like we talked about in the yes, no, maybe section. Uh, how excited are you? Or how brave are you to try new things rather than trying the same old thing? Now, I know some of you enjoy going to the same vacation spot year after year after year. In fact, you have a timeshare that feels like home because you go there every single year. And you love it. You go to the same restaurant. You go to the same little shops. And then you unfortunately invite your family members to come with you one time. And they're yelping and finding, well, well, I want to go to this shop, and I want to go to this restaurant, and can't we try this thing? And you're like, no, I've got all my favorites. It's hard doing something new. And so on an extreme scale, Jacob here has to step out of the known into the unknown. You need to understand something. Beersheba, it's the southernmost point of the promised land. It's as far south as you can go, and you take another step, and you're no longer in the promised land. You're in the unpromised land. It's a place where Abraham, your grandpa, had settled. In fact, the the reason why Abraham had made a a huge prayer and and a covenant and a commitment in that place is because there was some arguments with the neighbors who said, that's that's our well. This is our pit right here. And Abraham had to argue with them and say, no, 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 this was here. We dug it. This is ours. And uh, it's called Beersheba for a couple of reasons. In the very beginning with Grandpa, um, they believe it's called Beersheba because you can break the word down to mean well, Be'er, and Sheba or Saba uh, can mean seven in its singular form. And in the story of Abraham there trying to, uh, to make a covenant with the neighbor that this is our land and this is our property line and this is our well, uh, he sacrificed seven uh, sheep. And so it's the well of seven, this covenant that was made because of the sacrifice. So It's been in the family a long time. It's also the place where Isaac set up an altar and he prays to to God and makes a commitment to God. And so it's a very special place, but it's also the same place where Isaac and his boys, Jacob and Esau, were living when uh, Jacob decides to carry out his mom's plan to steal the birthright from his brother Esau. You know the story. Jacob fakes it because his dad uh, uh, didn't know a good ophthalmologist in Beersheba. (laughs) And so he tricks his dad into blessing him with the birthright. And it's from this place that Jacob runs. And it's that very evening that he runs from Beersheba, this spot, that he has his first vision, a vision of this ladder leading up to heaven 
Jacob's ladder. This is a special place to Jacob. It was home, the home that he ran away from, his home that he came back to when he had to meet his brother Esau years later, make restitution between the, the brother that he swindled. And he's back, but it's on his way. And I don't know if when you're going on trips or if you've ever moved from a place and you know you're going and you're not coming back for a long time, if ever, you stop off at the little places, you pull the car over, right? And you have one last moment at these special places. And he stops and, and it's at this place. The interesting thing is that Beersheba can also mean something else that's probably really, really the most pressing thing on Jacob's mind. Is Be'er. It can mean two different things. It can mean a pit or it can mean a well. And Sheba or Seba in Hebrew, in its plural form, means 70 which is what commentators think is the number of family members Jacob is taking with him down to Egypt. And it causes him in that moment to ask a question at Be'er Sheba. Am I taking my family to a pit or to a well? Because his sons had just told him the real story of what happened to Joseph. He had been thrown into a pit, and then his life had spiraled downward, three more rungs down the, the, the ladder of hardship before God promoted him to his position of power. And Jacob has to wonder, I'm leaving the promise and leading what God said would be ours, and I'm going down from this place. Am I taking my family to a pit of slavery? Or am I taking them to a well that will help them survive the famine and the drought that's currently going on? And these 70 people that are going with me, they're my responsibility because this is my choice. Where am I leading them? And so it's a very high-stress time when Jacob, or Israel, bows down and says a prayer before this altar in Beersheba. And I want to ask you as a community, have you, has God ever led you from the known to the unknown? And what fears did that well up within you? And what was your experience like? Let's talk just as a family. Has God ever led you from the known to the unknown? And what was that experience like? We're going to start right here with the red mic. Yeah, Sandy. Well, after um, being here in Loma Linda for 17 years and enjoying Loma Linda Church, Bible Lab, the whole thing, we picked up stakes recently and moved to Las Vegas. Yes. Where we knew nobody. Yeah. And well, I mean, going from no, the promised land to. From the promised land, of, <laughs> promised land of Loma Linda to yeah. Las Vegas. <laughs> yes. Yes. Most people pronounce it Las Wages. Oh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so then it comes time for church. Yeah. And, um, you know, we go to church, and uh, first couple of times, no one speaks to us. But in fairness, everybody's wearing a mask. Yeah. How do you meet people with a mask? Yeah. 
and nobody sees you smile and yeah. you know we didn't reach out either you yeah. just go and come home and watch thankfully for technology you still get a little promised land <laughs> you know when you come home you have a little vision <laughs> a little vision yeah. which poor jacob didn't get but yeah. anyway um about the third or so time we went i really made it a matter of prayer that's selfishly someone would reach out to us and and there's a lesson there yeah. we need to reach out to people Absolutely. and we're a nice couple you know <laughs> I, I, can, I can vouch for that uh, yes i prayed that someone <laughs> would reach out and and yeah. say hello so yeah. sure enough dur during the closing hymn everybody's standing yeah. and as it comes to a close a couple behind us reach out and kind of touch our shoulder and say, thank you so much for joining us today. So nice to have you here. And we turned, they're about our age. We turned around and chatted with them. And yeah. every week now we've been chatting with them. And I think we're going to make, you know, them as a friend. Then I thought, well, you know, we need to reach out too. Yeah. So I've been saying hello. Now masks are off. Yeah. So I'm saying hello to everybody. And yeah. they were begging up front for people to sign up for children's story. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, I can do that. Right. So I signed up for children's story in awesome. April, you know, just as a, and that'll be a way for people to get to know us. Yeah. Don met the assistant pastor who has a personality like you. I'm so sorry. And, uh, <laughs> So Don started talking to him about Bible Lab. Mm -hmm. He had never heard of Bible Lab. Mm -hmm. He's all excited about Bible Lab. Cool. So the next thing is we're going to have them over to dinner and show them a, a video of it and talk about it. And he's awesome. writing down it's, all it's, the information. It, it, it sounds like an Amway presentation. Come yeah, to our house. It does. it does. We have an opportunity. Yeah, so awesome. anyway, you know, even though we don't know people there and then our neighbor for some reason we got she and I got to talking about the Bible yeah. and she says you know I really wish I had a devotional book I says oh I've got lots of them come on in take wow. your choice yeah. so I do think God is there even though it is scary to yeah. leave the promised land of Loma Linda it is and go someplace yeah. else yeah that in the holy land of Loma Linda exactly yeah. um you know it's it's true, but your experience, and, and what I heard from you, is your experience was it would have been easier <clears throat> during those weeks to have the excuse of, of just sequestering yourself. Because you go to a church, and everyone's in mass, no one's saying hi, it's not home, it just doesn't feel like it will be home in some time. And that's the same emotion that Jacob is going through. You can imagine his family is going through. This is not home. And despite the fact that, you know, it was a drought and a famine, you still hold on hope that, well, you know, maybe it's going to start raining this next season or whatever. But just the feeling of, of just becoming more uh, sequestered in your life, in your relationships, and just going to a place you don't have friends is, you know, it, it really is such a transitional moment in your life that you can disconnect, disconnect from your promise and, and what you have. Sharon, green mic. Well, my first husband, Derwin Chamberlain, was a Canadian. And when he finished dental school, the plan was to join his uncle uh, who has a dental 
office available in Willowdale, Ontario, which is a suburban area, which I was very familiar with. Well, in his senior year, there were some people who convinced him that there was a very needy area about 150 miles north of, of uh, Toronto. There were two Adventist doctors there. There was no dentist for about 50 miles. Mm. One of them was actually pulling teeth. Mm. And um, he felt that we should go there. Yeah. Well, that was totally out of my comfort zone. Yeah. But we went. Um, I really had no fear because I felt that's where God was leading. Hmm. Yeah, it does make it does make a difference. I'll share in in a moment after this one. Uh, even during the times that I know God is leading, uh, I'm a lot more of a chicken than you'd probably guess. <laughs> My fear does well up. Purple Mike, over here. Is that Marina? I have to go back to the statement that God has a sense of humor. So right out of high school, I learned sign language, became a sign language interpreter, cool. told my parents I was not going to college. And the Lord said, ha. Huh. So Did you tell them verbally or in sign language? No, oh, this time only verbally, yeah. But now I do it in sign language, yeah. <laughs> so a few years passed as an interpreter. I loved it. And next thing you know, the conference office is calling me. We need a, we need a kindergarten teacher. My mom said, you will be a kindergarten teacher. I said, no. I became a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> um, so years passed. Some book else called and said, we need a sign language interpreter, but we need someone to teach sign language interpreting. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And someone said, yes, you are. <laughs> so looking back, once again, here I am now teaching high school that I said I'd never teach. Yep. And now I'm teaching sign language. Yeah. Get out of here. Absolutely. I, Only I, God. Yeah, I, I tell people never say never. That's right. Yes, that's exactly what you do, right? I said during my high school and first two years of college, adamantly, I will never be a pastor. <laughs> and I also said I would never be a teacher. And in my 29 years of, of work, all I've done is pastoring and teaching. Exactly. So now I'm saying I will never be a millionaire. <laughs> and you're my witness. Yeah, exactly. Are we here? Yeah, Brian. So um, when I was Catholic, I remember there was this uh, event that took place. And I remember Guyana with uh, Jim Jones. Yeah. And like after that happened, I remember here in the homily, I don't remember a lot of homilies from the Catholic Church because they're kind of forgetful. I mean, just forget them. They're not really. Anyway, the, the Father Mancini came up and said, if you leave the Catholic Church, this is what you're going to be going to. Pretty much all other churches are run by Jim Jones. And this was, this was the essence of his, uh, wow. of his homily. Wow. And so, I'm so glad we didn't serve any refreshments yeah. <laughs> today. Yeah. So when my wife and I separately started studying the Great Controversy, um, she started attending, the pastor would visit her, and she would attend, and she kept coming up to me telling me how wonderful the people were, yeah. and I should come to church with her. And I was like, yeah. no way, 
because I had been Catholic for so long and I just had this idea that coming into the Seventh-day Adventist Church was, you know, I could hear Father Mancini still talking. It's like yeah. Jim Jones stuff. Um, yeah. You know, this, this is what I was thinking. So it took a lot of work, but it was basically how wonderful the people were in this little church in Johnston, Rhode Island, yeah. who really reached out to my ex-wife now, uh, reached out to her yeah. and made her feel welcome and then in turn made, yeah. made me feel welcome also. But it was uh, it's not something I wanted to do yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> To come into this well, church. Well, I can imagine so, yeah. because you know the the message was fear, and I'm I'm really glad that you had the experience you did. I had a similar experience because growing up, I was told uh, just so we balance it out with the Catholics. I was told if I became Catholic or I became any other denomination other than the one I was in, that I was giving up my salvation. And so I watched many of my contemporaries not only walk away from my denomination but walk away from Christianity because they would be going into the pagan beliefs and, and doctrines that only our faith had. And because we had it, we had salvation and they did not. And that's why we would evangelize from their denomination into ours and baptize them and call it evangelism as if they hadn't heard of Jesus Christ before. So we can't be too harsh on the Catholics because I grew up in a church that did the same thing the other direction the fear of walking away. And I think that's the, the greatest challenge that Jacob experienced is because he had been brought up generationally saying, God has given us this land. We walked here, we settled here, we can't walk away. Because if we walk away, we walk away from the promise. The promise of God that we would be a great nation. And I think that's why it's important the next things that God says in verses 1 through 7 is to help Jacob and all of his family understand what they were walking toward and who they were walking with. Because if you look in verse 3, God says, I am God, do not be afraid. Every single one of us that spoke here about walking from the known to the unknown brought up the experience of fear. You can't help it. When I, uh, halfway through my undergrad, switched from pre-med to theology, I was scared to death. I didn't look like the other guys in my class. They were there in shirts and ties. And I was like, should I wear a shirt and tie? Everyone's wearing a shirt and tie. And I was there in a polo shirt and khakis. So I asked the professor, am I underdressed? He says, no, they're overdressed. You're good. <laughs> so I was great. Two months later, the uh, head of the theology department comes to me and says, hey, look, conference has a new program. They're having the uh, students during their junior year uh, work as assistant pastors in the local churches. And we're going to assign you to a church. And here's the church, Fort Worth First Church. And so I'm like, oh, Lord, they told me that. And you would think that I'd be like, great, this is exciting. I go get the, you know, help with the youth department and everything. No, I went to the student center. They, they had this little prayer room, this dark little prayer room, and I locked myself in that thing for hours, and I was sobbing like a little baby. You guys wouldn't recognize me then because it was so far beyond me because at that moment in my life, I did not see that I could step into the role of someone who could share spiritual things. It was so far beyond me. 
I had no tools. I, had not, I felt like I had nothing to say. And it was also during a time and in a place where the experience that I had had was pastors telling you what you were doing wrong. And there was one thing I never wanted to do was to wag my finger in front of a crowd of people and tell them what they're doing wrong. And so I was sobbing like a baby because I was going from the known, which is uh, being safe, I'm in class, I don't have to be up front, I don't have to talk, and stepping into the unknown. What you guys don't realize is my first two years after graduating from undergrad, working in a local church, the Burleson Church, right next to the union office, Southwest Union office, I would get so nervous. Every three weeks, my senior pastor would have me preach, and I hated it. Because I'd get so nervous, I'd get tunnel vision. I couldn't read my notes. I couldn't read a manuscript. I couldn't remember what I was going to say. I gave a seven-minute sermon one week, and nobody complained. <laughs> my hands would shake. My knees would shake. My voice would shake. My throat would get dry. So the poor deacon trying to help us just survive this stupid sermon would bring me a tumbler of water, but my hand's shaking so much I'm spilling it on the front of my suit. Put it back down. But look, but look what God does. Look what God does. He, he takes you from the unknown and he takes you where you're supposed to be for the right time in the right place. And that's why God says, I'm God. And the question is, what is he saying? I am God. Because he's not saying, I'm your boss, do what I say. It's not what he's saying. Because even the language that's used to express, I am God, is more like saying, I'm here. I'm right here. So don't be afraid. He goes on to say in verse 4, I will go with you, I will sh and I will surely bring you back again. In other words, some of you have gotten to a place in your life to where you're so afraid to step out in faith to do this next thing God's inspiring you to do because God's led you to the perfect life, the perfect home, the perfect situation, the perfect job, that you're fighting against the times when God comes in and says, yeah, this is great, but comfort is your worst enemy. And I'm not leading you into places of comfort. I'm leading you into places of purpose, places of significance, where you can do the most significant work in the world that I placed you within. And so it's significant that God will say, I will go with you. And the reason why it's significant is at this time, the theology of all world religions at that time is that the gods were geographically specific and were restrained to boundaries geographically. And God says, it doesn't matter where you go, I'll go with you. I'll go down and I'm going to bring you back to the promise. You, you're not letting go of what I promised. I'll bring you back. Don't worry. So I want to ask you um, a couple of things. Let's ask the previous question. What are some of God's promises that we fear we might be walking away from? And also, what does it tell you about God? that he would speak to Jacob in a vision at a time like this. Is this consistent with his character? And does he still do the same thing in our day? What do you guys think? What do you think God is doing here? And what are some of the, some of the challenges that 
we face today where doing something new is seen as possibly walking away from something that we should be holding on to or hanging on to. What are your thoughts? Go for it, Brian. You know, um, before I became an Adventist, like I said, I was Catholic, and uh, one of the big issues I had was the Sabbath. I always thought that the Sabbath was, for some reason, just changed. So when I first became an Adventist, before I became an Adventist, I did a lot of study and uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what on. And, and um, the Sabbath is such a big issue. I mean, it's bigger than I think a lot of people think, because yeah. we tend to tend to make it almost like a ritual sometimes, and we make it like it's a command that we have to do, is, and, and becomes a testament of works. Right. And, and I think it's been levied correctly on some occasions against us in that, that regard. Right. Right. But um, it's, it's not when you start to see the spiritual nature of the law. And, and what I'm, on my interactions with other Christians, the fear they have about the Sabbath and, and giving that up, uh, embracing, uh, giving up Sunday and embracing the Sabbath, it, it's almost palpable. You know, it's, 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 when you talk to them sometimes, they become almost um, uh, irrational, you know, as they, as they start talking about it, because like, they're very afraid. And, and I think I had that same fear, though, at the beginning. It was like, is this right? But for some reason, it kind of quickly, I was able to accept that the Sabbath was the sabbath and it didn't bother me so much just like vegetarianism i became a vegetarian almost like a month and of course to everyone in my family i had joined a cult you know because i did all these things wrong i was in rhode island rhode island is to catholicism what utah is to mormonism it's the most catholic state percentage-wise um so they were very afraid very afraid for me and um that fear is taken away as, as I studied and I prayed and I did more. But I mean, it's, it's there for a lot of people, I think, when, uh, whenever we bring something new up. And I, and I think when we interact with people, it's something that we should be aware of, that you know, they're kind of terrified sometimes yeah. that what we may be saying is right. And it's worse if we present it in the wrong way, too. Yeah. I love that, Brian. I, I also, like, I, I share something with your family in that, I actually get very afraid when I hear of some people going to certain Adventist churches because in many ways they're cultic in their understanding of why are we here? What, what are we called to do as a community of faith? And what are we asking people to do? Because like you mentioned about the Sabbath, um, many people worship the Sabbath but never worship the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, it's interesting when you look at, at Jesus Christ when he was on earth. The two things he had to talk about the most was money and the Sabbath. And when he talked about the Sabbath, it was always in defense of him breaking it. And the people who were upset were the church leaders because he wasn't worshiping the Sabbath. And because of that, Christ even had to try to help them parse and understand is Sabbath made for man or man made for the Sabbath? And he goes through this conversation trying to help them understand the blessing of the Sabbath. And I would ask many of you here, uh, do you have a regular date night? And if you treated your date night like most of our churches treat the Sabbath, your significant other would not feel significant because of the rule that you would make on date night. But if date night was seen as a celebration, this time that you can invest in each other, and finally, we're taking a break and we're setting everything aside so our relationship remains strong. 
on this weekly basis. We have our date night and nothing gets in the way of date night. If we actually approach the Sabbath that way, I wonder how many churches would be overflowing because the people who experience that as their Sabbath would understand growth relationally with God so much farther than a treatise on doctrine ever could help them. Back here, Terry. Red well, you, you, you brought up something I hadn't really thought of before, which happens a lot here <laughs> in the so. Bible Lab. But uh, that is, that's Jacob's state of mind when he's going to Egypt. Yeah. He, he's, when I think about it, he's got fears from the past and fears for the future. Uh, he's had a lot of failure in his life. Yeah. Um, and so his, his, his settling in Beersheba would, would be natural. It's like he's holding on to yeah. the hope. Yeah. And what's, gonna, what's before him is completely unknown. Yeah. And, and for God to come and to reassure him in this way is just, it's just amazing. And yeah. I, you asked the question, does God still do that? I think God does if we, if we take the time to listen. Yeah. I think, I, I think you're hitting on something too, Terry, of the importance of discomfort. If, if we think that God's goal for our life is to be comfortable, then our prayers reflect that. Hey, God, please remove this discomfort, uh, discomfort from my life. Please help this uncomfortable situation or this thing that would not help me be more comfortable. You know, uh, take all of this out of my life. And Lord, please bring this blessing into my life. When we pray for blessings, we ask for blessings we receive. We're not praying to be a blessing, which is the only prayer you really should pray. Lord, make me a blessing. Um, because asking for blessings, you're asking to be more comfortable. And comfort is the enemy of greatness. You have to understand the, it's in the times of great discomfort that you actually will do the things that you've needed to do all along. You just never were in a position that you had to do it. And so you're definitely hitting on that. Green microphone. Um, it's, it's amazing how much I love coming to Sabbath and it's a routine, and it's a comfort, but at the same time, it's a place of great fear, yeah. because every time I come here, I know I'm going to be challenged again, and that God's calling me to a mission, a purpose yes. of discomfort, yes. but here it happens every single time, and it's happening again in the room right now. God is giving us a vision, whatever you want to call it. He's giving us that comfort yes. when we come together, and when we ask for it, and so when I, when people ask me about the Bible lab or I tell them you should come here, it's because, yes, we're getting fed directly in every one of these sessions. So bring your fear yeah. and it will be squelched and you can go forward with your purpose. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Amen. Amen. You know, we, we touched on this when, uh, a couple years ago when we went through the series on Hebrews and we get to chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 18 through 26, that section, where traditionally we've used that to talk about the great shaking, the great shaking that would take place. And it's funny because Paul, you know, referencing the Ezekiel and Isaiah statements of the shaking, says, yeah, but you guys have it all wrong. You think the shaking is when it shakes all the weak people away and only the strong will, will remain because we've held on to the traditions. And we're hanging on to Mount Zion, I mean, uh, Mount uh, Sinai. And so he says in Hebrews 12, he says, you've, you've totally missed it because God's goal is to shake things up. 
It's what God does. And when you're around God, you will be shaken. But the shaking, the goal that God has, and he spells this out in Hebrews 12, 18 to 26, he says God's goal is the shaking will cause you to let go of the known. Otherwise, you'll never be able to reach the blessing that I have, which is unknown to you right now. And he uses two different mountains. He says you got to let go of Mount Sinai or you'll never be able to touch Mount Zion. And what you just said is what we have to do every week is let God shake us from letting go of the known, not that we're giving up the specialness of tradition, because I, I think traditions need to stay special. I think what he's saying is, by hanging on to what you know and everything that's safe, you'll never go to the place of success, of total success, exactly. Back here, blue mic. Yes, I've been waiting for a long time to ask this question or raise this issue because I need guidance and the issue is I think it was Shakespeare or someone who said all's well that ends well <laughs> and for Joseph it ended well and now his father is being invited to go into something brand new yes and eventually that ended well mm -hmm. but I am concerned about being led into new things or situations that do not end well. Yeah. And the example that is always bothering to me is John the Baptist. Yep. Who was more faithful than he? And there he was in a Roman dungeon or Israeli dungeon, beheaded yep. at the whims of a voluptuous person. And yeah. Christ was himself was right there. Yep. And, and he raised Lazarus, but he doesn't raise his cousin John. Yeah. So we have to ask the same question about John that we have to ask about our own lives today. When did John's life end? When is the end of John's, the Baptist's life? Was it when his head was chopped off? That was it. That's the end. That's all John ever got, ever will get to experience. I'm hearing a whole lot of a whole lot of commotion going on. When is the end of John the Baptist's life experience? Because this is what Christians have not acknowledged or had as the filter for every tough dangerous, life-threatening situation in your existence. If you believe that the end of your life is when somehow on this world, in this plane of existence, at this time, that you have an end to your life, you do not have the hope of the resurrection. You do not have hope of eternity. So as I look at it, when is the end of John the Baptist's life there's no such thing, because John the Baptist has eternal life. His real life, the majority of his life, if you were to, at some point in time, when we're all in heaven, count how many years has John the Baptist lived? And maybe we, at that point we're at 300 trillion years. And you ask John the Baptist, when did you die? 
he would tell you, for a believer, you never die. And that's what Christ told people. If you believe in me, though they may slay, you will live. So your real life is not this life. Jacob's real life was not this life. Your life is not this life. That's why I call this experience the before life. People call the experience in heaven afterlife. I disagree. That is your life. Because when you look at what is the majority of the years or time of your experience, it will be the afterlife, as people refer to it. That is your life. This is your before life. Because this is not life the way God intended it to be. This is something else. And God, Jesus said, I bring life and bring it more abundantly. And so with that experience, please understand, it doesn't matter what happens in this experience because this isn't your life anyways. Your real life is coming. I want you to see something else before we close here because we're out of time. Verses 28 through 34 of chapter 46 go on to say, Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. Judah is GPS of their time. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, uh, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who, are living in, uh, who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what's your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. I want you to see something here. This is the original prodigal story. Jesus does part two when he tells about the prodigal son. Look at the story. This is the prodigal father. Because the father who is seen as detestable in the eyes of the Egyptians, his father is coming to his new home. And just like Jesus' story of the father running out to greet the son. This is the story of the son running out to greet the father. And at a time when shepherds were so detestable to the Egyptians that even in their hieroglyphs, the depictions on their monuments depict them as these lean, demaciated, sickly-looking individuals to show their detest for this cast of society. At this time, God shows a reunion of families and even makes the detestable something that the Pharaoh accepts. Sheep and goats were not generally used for sacrifice by the Egyptians because their meat did not belong to the priestly royal dish and because wool was considered by the priests to be unclean and was therefore never used for the wrapping of the dead. Their herdsmen are, uh, are represented on the monuments as these long, lean, distorted, sickly forms. Contempt 
is what Egypt offered them. And yet, in this first prodigal story, the son runs out, wraps his arms around. The continuation of the story is not only does he provide a place for them, God prepared a place that would be theirs, that would keep them safe, that would keep them separate, but at the same time would provide for them during a time when the world was dying. God provided a place and he has the same for us in a world that's killing itself, in a world at war, in a world that is dark, dying, and a drought of love. God is also providing a place for us. And isn't that the greatest news of all? that God is preparing a place for us and he's going to come back and he's going to take us home to live with him. I'm so thankful that you joined us for this series on Joseph. I really hope that you see that story in a new light and in a more educated way, understanding what was really going on during that time and how Joseph really struggled with some of the same things that you struggle with. Now, in our next series, uh, we move on to a book in the New Testament, a letter to the people of Rome, written by Paul, which is trying to help them understand what in the world does God want? What, what is it, this life that we talk about, living by faith? And how do you build that faith? And what does God want you to do in between now and when he comes to take you home? And I know it's going to not only expand your view of God's love, but I think it's going to help you in your daily walk. So I invite you to come back for our next episode as we start a brand new series on the book of Romans called The Missing Gospel. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.